We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to Fielding the 68, the world's favorite college basketball bracketology show. Every Monday and Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern, we are here to break down the chaos that is college basketball and tell you whether or not your team is in or out as of the day we are recording. Today, it's Feb- February 3rd. I almost just corrected myself. It's in January. I can't believe it's February, boys. The season is heating up. And we've got two experts here to break it down for us. We got Rocco Miller. We got Andy Bottoms. Gentlemen, first question for you today of all the various hosts that they bring into this very show. Am I in the last four in or the first four out? Andy, what do you think? I mean, I've only been on twice so far this year and you've been the host both times. So I would be hard pressed to, uh, I mean, clearly my favorite of the ones I've worked with so far this year. So I don't know. Rocco, what one seed territory? Are we one seed territory? Uh, one seed territory, absolutely. I mean, I've only worked with three total, even between last year and this year, you, Kai, and Jim. So love all three of you. I got to hang out with you guys in New Orleans, too. So, I, you know, extra A-plus for that. That's a scary memory. I'm not going to lie to you. Well, thank you for the kind words. I needed the ego boost on this Friday afternoon. <laughs> uh, look, we are brought to you by Bet Rivers. You can find us on the Field of 68 YouTube channel. If you want to watch any of these episodes in full, you can go back there to do so. And also, if you're watching us live, jump in the comment section. We will answer questions from the crowd. This is your opportunity to get on the microphone and fire bracketology questions at two of the smartest guys in the bracketology space. What more could you possibly ask for? All right, today uh, a, a little bird has told me that we've got some one seeds that you guys may agree on. But before we jump ahead and look at the consensus one seeds, I want to ask you about metrics because I'm confused. I've heard some guys on the Field of 68 Network this week, Terrence Oglesby to throw a name out there, he's not too happy with the net. He's not too happy with the net because his favorite team doesn't look too good in the net, but still – some accusations have been thrown around that should we really be valuing the net over other elements of basketball itself? Wins, losses, other analytics, Ken Palm, Torvik. How important is the net and where should we prioritize it in the mix of everything else when considering how to seed teams going forward? Andy, let's go to you first. Uh, well, thanks for throwing me that one first. You're, you know, might may soon be moving down the the list here of uh, favorite hosts. This is a this is a question that's 
hard to really answer. I mean, the canned answer that the NCAA would give is that it's really just a, a sorting tool is the, the terminology that they use. And it's basically a way to categorize wins and losses. It, it isn't like they go and take it and say, well, see, numbers one through four in the net are the, are your one seeds. Um, and so it, it's important. It, you know, I don't want to downplay the importance of it because it does frame up how we look at who teams have beaten. And there are certainly... Uh, you know, you can look back historically and say, hey, anybody below X point, you're going to have a really hard time getting in. Even as we go and look at teams to consider for the field, once you get, you know, certainly out of the 70s, probably you know, even ones in the 70s, you kind of got to, you know, squint at a little bit to try to to see if they have a, a good case. And, you know, what it attempts to do is bring into account all of those factors, right? Um, the challenge is that it's an algorithm and, it's not like the RPI where somebody could go and recreate it before. So even if you hated the RPI, you could see how it worked and you could do all those things. So I think a little bit of it is the unknown uh, making it difficult because you can't really uh, draw a firm conclusion of, oh, if this happens on the court, I know the net will do this. Uh, and I think that's what what makes it a little bit challenging, uh, at least for us as we look at it. But uh, I, I won't, it does take into account some of the efficiency metrics and and all that. So it does take into account things like that, similar to what Ken Palm would look at uh, and things like that. So I, I'll let Rocco dive into it more. I don't want to ramble on. So we'll uh, we'll take turns kind of talking about it. But that's that's at least my first blush answer. No, that's yeah. I mean, that's a great start, Andy. I think you framed it up very well by saying the NCAA uh, would want us to, to talk about it that way. I think, I think for a common fan or a common even coach or somebody that covers the sport, the uh, best way to look at the net is prioritize that metric with your opponents. It's really there to judge how you did against certain opponents. Right. And that's how we come up with, uh, how hard it is to be the top 40 team. That's a quad one, a win. If you do that in their building, uh, if you beat a top 75 team on the road, that's a quad, you know, a, a one or one B depending on where they fall. Um, I think I think the interesting thing about the net, more from a basketball perspective, I talked to a lot of staffs about this, is, you know, the, the net is comprised of strength of schedule, game results, location, scoring margin, offensive and deficient, uh, defensive efficiency, and the quality of the wins is kind of their own definition, the NCAAs. Um, my problem with it is you have scoring margin and offense and these efficiency metrics kind of get double hit. So when you have a blowout, um, you, you know, a team beats another team by 25. That's where I think you see a lot of spikes overnight. Uh, team either getting drastically hit and losing 10 spots in the net or another team skyrocketing 10 spots. It, it really, um, I think it's getting double hit in the net when you have those blowout situations. I think coaches are picking up on that too. You see so many late game scenarios now, Greg, where um, coaches will leave the, the starters in until the very end in an 18-point game. I see it all the time. I was, I was at UCLA last night. Saw, saw it in that game so anyway I think it's I think it's created a whole different environment and a whole different um, coaching mentality on how they want to measure the end of these games um, New Mexico great example Utah State game the other night New Mexico was down 20 the whole game they left their starters in and they only lost by 11 that helped them a little bit in the in the metrics yeah, I think yeah. that's what you see in, in teams like you know Houston and Tennessee everybody looks at them and they're rated high in the net they don't necessarily have the number of quality wins that other teams around them do but if you go look at how they've played people, they have just blown the doors off a handful of teams. And that that helps, whether intentional or not. And I, I would agree with what Rocco said. You do see that more often in some of these games. I, I question how much that is the motivation in some of the buy game type scenarios, uh, at least to a certain extent. But yeah, I mean, you get into these conference games and you're playing decent teams. If you can 
close that margin down, there's benefit in doing so. Now there's also risk in, in terms of risking guys getting hurt and things like that. But right. um, it, it explains a lot of the anomalies that you see when you look at a team who may seem generally less accomplished than other teams around it, but they still score really high in the net. And I think that's one thing that, uh, you know, people can, can really call out about it and say, Hey, this doesn't make sense because of these teams. And that's fair, but Ken Palm's also doing some of the same things when you factor in the efficiency metrics in that scenario. And uh, there's plenty of examples of that over the years. And, and it's not like anybody's you know, turning and walking away from that as a, uh, an analytics tool by any stretch. So I have a couple follow-ups for you guys. I don't want to spend the entire show just debating the merits of net rankings because at some point we do need to unveil our bracket as of Friday, February 3rd. Uh, but my team, the Michigan Wolverines last night, uh, went into the night with zero quad one wins, came out of the night with two quad one wins, one from their own game where they beat Northwestern and one from some movement where Maryland has now cracked the top 30 in the net rankings. Does that matter at all? Like at this point, like with, with so much movement where things can shift and maybe that can happen at the middle of March as well, but like for a team to go from zero to two on one given night, is it just like too early to even be considering this, how valuable is it to really watch where teams are at now as far as projecting for where they'll be a month and a half from now, Rocco? Yeah, I think I think you have to look at it. Um, the, the best way to look at it, especially from a bubble scenario, is how many teams have you beaten that's actually going to be in the field? Um, so today, both Northwestern and Maryland would still be in the field. So that's two wins against the field. I think that's way more important than any quad uh, because the committee – when you come down to those last six to eight spots, it's all about who you beat, where you beat them, um, and, and all that, right? So it's going to be wins away from home. It's going to be wins against the field uh, that are going to get you in the field. So uh, I, I think from that standpoint, they already had the Maryland one in their pocket. They got the Northwestern one now. Um, so, and now they've beaten Northwestern twice, haven't they? Do I have that right? Yeah, two and up. Okay, so now they've got three. So they've got three now. And I think that's the most important thing. The way I look at it, is if we're doing a – I have an entire different breakdown for the bubble than I do for the top half of the bracket. So for the top half of the bracket, I have 15 different categories that I track, and each team I go team by team, and I compare all of them. I don't put more weight on one than the other. Obviously, you know, quad 1A wins are very important at the top of the bracket. Uh, when we get to the bubble, the most important things are who did, who did you beat, where did you beat them, uh, what was your road record, you know, how many road wins did you get in the top two quadrants? Because at that point, you're kind of searching for something positive, even if it's not a tournament team. You know, if you go on the road and beat like a Syracuse or maybe a Temple or a Vanderbilt, some of these ones I'm looking at right now, um, those are still going to be meaningful when you're compared against a team that maybe doesn't have one, uh, like a Kent State, for example, who doesn't. So, um, it, you know, th that's the way I, I sort it out. I have 17 categories for the bubble. And um, it's, it's really just a beauty pageant. But a lot of times with that much information, it makes my decision making a lot more clear. And ideally, the committee gets that clear as well. OK, so my second follow up for you, Andy, I'm going to throw a different spin on uh, a follow up at you here. Um, so uh, I want to use Ohio State as an example. They fell last night again. I think it was their eighth loss in nine games now. They're 36th as of today in the net. Before last night, they were still top 30. They were 29th. They sit as of today at 11 and 11 on the season. And it's not just net that like some other advanced metrics have Ohio State pretty high comparative to other teams uh, in high major conferences that have that record. 
is there a point where this whole system could just totally break? Like, could we get a scenario where there's a, like a big 12 team that goes one and 19 in conference play, but loses those 19 games by a point and they're still a top 25 team? Like, is are we in danger of that ever happening in this sport or is that just too absurd that it'll work itself out? I think eventually it just becomes too, too many losses. I mean, it would be interesting to kind of run through a scenario where a team, you know, won or lost every game by a point and, and kind of what it would look like, at least against top level competition. And then you kind of said, let's assume you blow everybody out in quad four by 30 points and all the other games are there. And I think that's what you look at with Ohio State. You know, they've got a two point loss to Purdue, four points to Rutgers, um, you know, nine, nine to Illinois is not particularly close, you know, seven at Maryland. But some of these are road games where they've kept things relatively close three at Nebraska and five against Wisconsin. And then they, all their quad four games, except for the Minnesota one they lost. I mean, they just have won by, I think at least they're all at least 20 points, most by at least 25, you know, beat Cincinnati by almost 30 early on. And so you see some of those things and, you know, eventually that's where the wins and losses still matter. I mean, you're not going to put Ohio state in because they haven't, you know, they haven't won enough games period. They're 500. There's, you know, history that looks back and probably a conversation we can have when we talk about a team like Oklahoma right now as you try to figure out what to do with them. They're two games over 500 right now. You know, if this, what we're trying to do is project the bracket as if the season ended today. And if this, when the season ends and somebody's two games over 500, they're not making it. Um, so I think those things kind of take care of itself. But I do think it's a case where you can kind of throw the net up in front of somebody and be like, hey, look, if you're telling me if you really truly wanted to use it as a rankings tool and you're telling me Ohio State's the 36th best team in the country, I'm going to tell you that you're, you're crazy because they can't win games. Um, and so th I think there's validity to that argument about it. But again, I think to you know kind of circle it back to what we talked about initially, it really isn't truly a ranking tool. If, they, if it was believed in that it was that good of a ranking tool, then you wouldn't need to do bracketology. You wouldn't need a selection committee. You could just go and slot people in that way, which is not what's done. And I don't think what anybody is advocating for or would advocate for anyway. Yeah, I think with many of these, the key word, as you referenced, is it's a tool. All of these things are tools. The more that you can use, the more information you can gather, the more different approaches that you can do to sort and rank these teams. In the end, the smarter you're going to be in trying to do so. Uh, and ultimately, these are all resources for smart people like you guys to tell us what the field is going to look like. All right, we've made the people wait long enough. Uh, I teased it at the top of the show. We have agreement. We have consensus. We have one seeds that Rocco and Andy are on the same page for. We'll pull those up for you right now. Uh, and then we'll just throw it to you guys to, to take us through this. Rocco, let's have you go first again. Um, anything relevant, anything jump out that would be worth noting with these four teams right now? Yeah, I think the, the biggest notable difference from Monday is Kansas jumping back up to the one seed line. I think we have them third in the pecking order. So the order right now uh, should be Purdue, Alabama, Kansas, Arizona. I think that's what we're, we're showing. So um, and I think that's a testament to Kansas, um, you know, nine wins against the projected field. <laughs> Pretty incredible. Um, tied with Purdue for the most in the country. Four uh, of those nine are in the quad one A category. Um, they have nine quad one wins overall. And so, you know, that's the most in the country as well. So the Jayhawks are just at a point where the sum of the parts are just greater than the teams are being compared against. I think the next two contenders for a one seed would be Houston and Tennessee. Houston and Tennessee have similar problems to where they have kind of a lack of wins against the field, but they have a lot of dominance against the rest of their schedule. 
um, very high metrics, the top two teams in, you know, the Ken Palm and, and the net itself. Uh, but I think the, the abundance of resume work that both Kansas and Arizona have done, get them those third and fourth number one spots uh, right now. Andy. Yeah, I think uh, as Rocco said, Kansas is the change from where we would have sat Monday. If you look at their upcoming schedule um, before we hit Arizona, I mean, they got three of the next four on the road. A lot of these teams have three of the next four on the road, actually, but uh, they go to Iowa State on Saturday, host Texas at Oklahoma at Oklahoma State. So there's you know, no bad losses to be had there. Eventually, though, if they take enough losses, they can play themselves off the one line. But in terms of raw number of quality wins and, and opportunities, any, anybody else is going to be hard pressed to catch up with where they are at this point if they keep uh, if they keep playing well, uh, and even you know padded that a bit with the win at Kentucky over the weekend. Uh, the last spot for me came down to Arizona and Houston. I think Tennessee feels like there's starting to be a little separation after losing to Florida this week. Uh, Arizona, what you like is uh, seven quad one wins, including four uh, high quad one wins. They, they've beaten Tennessee, which you know head to head doesn't totally matter for this but it certainly doesn't hurt to beat them it was in Arizona so that's worth uh noting as well and and really if not for their I I guess weird is maybe the best way you could put it losses uh at least a couple of those losing you know at Utah losing at home to Washington State if not for that I think they'd you know be solidly on the on the one line uh just you know given they've got 11 wins in the top two quadrants good non-conference strength schedule eight and two road neutral games um, and, and really grayed out well there. Houston, as we talked about before, is the one that's a little bit hard to gauge. They had to come back and beat Wichita State last night, uh, but the quality metrics, love them. They, they're first in all of those. Even the resume metrics are, are fairly good, uh, 10 and one in the top two quadrants, but only two of those high quad one wins. Only one of these teams that's got a, you know, they've got a quad three loss to Alabama or to, Temp, to Temple. Uh, and when you look, as Rocco said, it wins against the field. They beat St. Mary's on neutral court, one at Virginia. Those are both really strong wins. But outside of that, they have beaten some of the better mid-major teams that uh, are, are going to be on that 12-seed line right now in Kent State and Oral Roberts. But outside of that, they just don't have as many opportunities. They play Memphis twice in their last five games of the season, and those are really uh, short of being able to you know, kind of pad some of their road wins and things like that. Those are really the biggest opportunities that they're going to have. Yeah, so I I want to pick at Houston a little bit. I'm glad you ended with that. Um, so are they in a spot where they just need to hold serve and wait for these other teams on the one line right now to sort of just fall off, given the, the schedule they're going to play? Like, that's easier said than done, right? Houston had to come from behind uh, just this week. But, like, if Houston w- loses, let's say, one more game this season, would you assume that's enough for them to like, is there a number that they need to stay above the threshold on, or are they really just privy to whatever happens to those teams ahead of them that might have some bigger opponents down the stretch? What do you think, Andy? Uh, You know, I think they could lose at Memphis. I think that would be the most uh, forgivable loss that they could, they could take from, uh, from here on out. Uh, It's hard to say because so much is dependent upon what goes on around them. I think, while the numbers are still probably going to like them regardless, I do think that's important to know. I also think they're uh, the, you know, there, there's some subjectivity a, a little bit in it as well in terms of how people perceive them. They already are believed to be in a weaker conference, which they are. Uh, and so I think to take losses to teams that are not really going to be in the NCAA tournament picture just reinforces, it, it will reinforce for those people who have that belief already that they're really not good enough. I, 
I don't know that that's fair, but I think that's reality to a certain extent. And um, had they maybe lost one of the other games that they they won in one of the top two quadrants and not dropped a, a quad three home game, maybe that would matter. That game was only by one point, uh, and they have a chance to go to Temple this weekend. You know, if they blow them out, does that prove something? Probably does to a certain extent. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that there's a set number. I certainly think if they lose probably – three or more that feels like a pretty tall order because at that point you've either gotten swept by memphis or you lost at memphis and you and you lost to somebody else that that is not going to be in the tournament picture at which point it gets pretty gets pretty difficult to uh to kind of overcome where they would be at that point now if all the other one seeds drop a bunch of games which seems relatively unlikely maybe they allow themselves to be back in that mix but um they they definitely are in take care of business don't stub your toe mode right now okay all right, I want to uh, end our one seed conversation with one little round robin quick hitter. I'm going to force you guys to on the fly make a decision here. Uh, I feel confident as a Big Ten guy saying Purdue will finish the season on the one line. I'm not worried about that. They're, they just have such a gulf between them and the other teams in this conference. They've done such a good job building that resume, establishing themselves as the number one team in the country right now. The other three I could all see falling off. I think Alabama is pretty clearly number two to me right now, as we had them in the seed list when we brought the graphic up, uh, you've got Kansas right there. And then you've got Arizona holding down the fourth spot right now. Pick one of those three that you feel the most confident will not be on the one line at the end of the season. I'm going to make you guys go, go from evaluating where we're at today to doing a little predicting for me over the next month. Let's start with you, Rocco, but who, who are you least confident will stay on that one line? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I I was at the game when Arizona got punished uh, at Utah. I was in Salt Lake City for that one. And uh, so just seeing them lose that bad and then also seeing them lose by double figures to Wazoo at home, I do figure that when they come back to Pauly, they probably take a loss in that one. They might lose at USC. So um, I'll go with Arizona just because I, I, I love the system that Tommy's running, Tommy Lloyd. Um, you know, it's, it's super effective against most of the teams they play. But again, they got blown out at Oregon as well. Um, avenged that loss last night. But, but I, I do think Arizona down the stretch. There, there's probably a couple more losses in there, and in the Pac-12, you know, it's a little harder to make up for that. Kansas, I, I, I would, I was tempted to say Kansas because they will probably take more losses, but they're also going to keep picking up amazing wins. So that might just keep them right there. So it's kind of hard to predict that. Andy, yeah, I would say Arizona for the same reason. I mean, when you look at the teams who have taken head-scratching losses that are in contention for this, they are the one who stands out in that regard. So yep. uh, uh, picking them is essentially saying, not saying that it will happen again, but they've proven that it can happen to them. Uh, and really when you look at, you know, Alabama's schedule, there just doesn't seem like there's enough, enough places there where they could really, uh, now I say this, you know, a week ago they lost to Oklahoma by 24. I get it. But, uh, but, but, you know, they go to Tennessee, they do go to Auburn. Um, but, you know, a couple of the other road games are LSU and South Carolina, which are winnable. And then even Texas A&M close out the season, uh, who's, who's been kind of up and down. So if you're looking for places that they're really going to potentially take losses, you'd look at road games first. And, you know, the Tennessee one is certainly a possibility uh, in a game of, of contrasting styles there. But and, and then, as Rocco said, with Kansas, it, it certainly feels like they would have to lose. They, they would need to lose a lot, but none of the losses will be bad. Um but if, again, eventually the volume of them matters uh, to go back to our previous discussion. But I, it just feels like Arizona to me, even though 
realistically their schedule is the easiest of anybody's i think you just you know seeing that they've had had blips here and there would make me lean their direction yeah that uh you mentioned alabama's loss to oklahoma bet rivers i almost had to close my account down i could not live bet alabama enough times during that game it did not go well for me just to say gamble responsibly folks out there uh when you are betting with our friends at bet rivers all right let's move from one seeds to the bubble uh, a place that I feel uncomfortable just saying the name of, and I'm sure there are plenty of teams and plenty of fans out there that are starting to get a little nervy as we get into the second to last month of the regular season. Uh, let's do our, our last four in. Andy, we'll start with you. Who are your last four teams in the field? Yeah, so I had uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, Nevada, and Wisconsin. Uh, the first three to me were uh, relatively solid, I'd, I'd say, to put in uh, as, as you look down those. Um, West Virginia, another another metrics darling on the quality metric side, at least, you know, they average 25th there. They do have five quad one and two wins, or five quad one wins, six in, in quads one and quad two. The oddity for them is they're six and nine in, in quads one and two. They played no quad three games and they're seven and zero oh in quad four. So a little bit goofy in that regard, but they rank in the top 25 in the net, uh, have some solid wins and um, you know, so I think they're they are kind of teetering in that area where you're getting close to having you know too many losses or not being far enough above 500. Uh, and as you look at their upcoming schedule, it is rough. Uh, they at least get a couple home games, but they host Oklahoma and Iowa State. Then they go to Texas and to Baylor. So as we think about teams that you know maybe can or cannot take on uh, many more losses, they're already sitting at nine uh, with that schedule coming up. Doesn't necessarily make you feel great, uh, but they're uh, at least the safest of these four for me at this point. Uh, Kentucky, uh, often talked about in this uh, in this regard lately. You know, they're, they've got the one win versus teams in the field. That that win at Tennessee is is awesome. Uh, but other than that, they've really only beaten Texas A and M, who's in uh, contention. They did beat Michigan on a neutral floor. That helps a little bit, but uh, that quad four loss to South Carolina looms pretty large for them at this point, although they have been playing better uh, lately. So really just a chance for them to try to pick up some other high quality wins. They've got Florida and Arkansas coming up at home. So a chance to get teams that are at least either in, in the field or, or near the field uh, in these next couple games. Then you go to Nevada, uh, solid resume metrics with them. They're two and five in quad one, five and one in quad two, and no losses outside of those quadrants. That definitely helps six and six road neutral. Uh, works well for them and they've already beat all the good mountain west teams at home uh it would it would help them to uh maybe beat uh you know find a way to win at new mexico find a way to win at utah state to really have a a good um you know road win against one of the upper echelon teams in the conference but they've uh they've definitely taken care of business at home and then wisconsin was the one that i i debated a bit them beating ohio state last night really pushed them over the edge uh, their overall, you know, net is that moved up to 68th, uh, with that win, but they're 36 in resume metrics, uh, on average, which helps them out. They've got four quad one wins, including three against quad one, a three more in quad two. So, uh, you know, solid resume there. And then you've got the Tyler wall factor to try to consider and the injuries. That's always a slippery slope with how you really want to consider those. Uh, as we've talked about a number of times on here where you can't assume they would have won the games without him, but you also, uh, got to try to factor in the, the fact that he, uh, you know, would have made could have made a difference in some of those games. So, uh, you know, they had uh, at least that win put them in the field uh, narrowly for me. And they've got a chance to get a little bit of momentum. They got Northwestern at home. They go to Penn State, which would be tough. 
uh, go to Nebraska and then have Michigan, Rutgers, and Iowa at home all in a row. So a three-game homestand here coming up before too long at the Cole Center uh, for them. So a chance to uh, give themselves a little bit of breathing room or play themselves back onto the wrong side of the cut line. So just one quick question, and then we'll go to Rocco for his last four in. In comparing teams like Wisconsin and Kentucky, uh, I you know I pulled up both their resumes just to kind of scroll through and looking at the schedules here. And to me, um, you know, they, they both have a great win, like at Marquette for Wisconsin, Tennessee for Kentucky. I think Wisconsin has some other, like like a second tier of wins that are probably a bit better than Kentucky has. But you mentioned the Tyler Wall injury for Wisconsin is something that will be discussed. Does that go the other way with a team like Kentucky where – I guess just for example, Severe Wheeler went down and this team got a lot better for a couple weeks. Does that warrant mention the same way an injury where a player's out and the team got worse does? Or do you just write that off like, oh, we can't give them credit for that? Uh, that's probably pretty tough to give credit for. Uh, a little cold blooded to give them credit for, too, probably. Uh, I, I, although I wouldn't go so far as to say it's not a a point that might come up in the in the committee room, right? Like while how they've played in the last X amount of games doesn't matter now the way that it did uh, some number of years ago, I, I do think it's fair if I'm in the committee room and I'm trying to make a case that Kentucky should be in the field, I think it's completely reasonable to sit there and say, hey, look, they've made some changes. They're playing better. Um, maybe not point directly at, hey, this guy getting hurt made them, made them a better team. But I do think you can talk about changes they made uh, personnel-wise and, and different things like that that might have a factor. So I, I don't know that directly, but it, it would certainly be a talking point. And if the committee is doing their uh, due diligence to monitor the conferences and teams as they should, it's something that should come up. Um, it's just a matter of how much each person, how much weight each person might put on something like that. Okay. Yeah. And for the record, Severe did play uh, 33 minutes in their last game. So that may not even be a talking point going forward, but I was very curious for that answer. Thank you for that. Rocco, let's go to you. Who are your last four in? We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, it's the same mix as, as Andy's, just a little different order. So it's a lot of fun. Um, Wisconsin actually, you know, after regrading them this morning, uh, popped up to the top of the list of these four, but they're still going to Dayton in this bracket. Um, I've got Kentucky next, then Nevada, then West Virginia. So uh, Andy did a fantastic job breaking breaking down the reasons. I would just add, you know, almost the reason I put Wisconsin above the rest right now, I do like the fact that they have a collection of wins against the field 
two, three of them away from home, uh, and they're all pretty darn good at Marquette, at Iowa, and a neutral win over USC down in the Bahamas. Uh, to go along with a nice home win over Maryland that gives them four against the field. That's a nice number in this uh, part of the, the bubble world uh, when doing the comparisons. Um, they also did a uh, the win last night. Uh, checked a couple other boxes that I think are, you know, optically important. I don't know how important they truly are to the committee, but to me, I, I really don't like putting a team in when they're under 500 against the top three quads all combined. This at least got them to eight and eight. So it's kind of like, okay, I can feel a little better after that. Um, and they've got four quad one wins. So uh, that's another metric that's really in the Badgers' favor. Um, I would also <clears throat> echo what Andy said about Nevada. You know, they've, they, they've got those four really nice home wins against the four best teams in the Mountain West. Now they've got to, I think, got to go prove that maybe get one on the road. Um, just show us that you can do it. Right now their best road win, San Jose State. I love you, Tim Miles. But I think Nevada's still got to do a little bit more on the road. Um, so, so that's what they got left to do. They look good for today, but a lot of, a lot of basketball left to be played. And then I would also just, um, you know, on, on Kentucky's point, you, you asked him a question about the difference between them and Wisconsin, you know, Kentucky's only got the one quad one win. It's an amazing win at Tennessee. Uh, but it, it doesn't look good when they're just sitting there one and six in quad one. And then you go on to the next column, they're three and six against the top two, a five and six against the quad two. And you got to get all the way to Q3 to to get to an over 500 record. Um, that little, it cut probably seemed little a road win at Old Miss that starts to build a better story because uh, they still are under 500 on the road that got them to four and five. Um, so there's, there's a lot of these things where it probably doesn't seem like a lot to fans, but they do start to add up. So it, it isn't, it, the, all these results are crucial. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we also do have our consensus last four in here. We've got Rocco. We've got Andy. We've also got Lucas Harkins and Brad Wachtel here. Here is the official fielding the 68s last four in. Uh, and gentlemen, you guys nailed it. These are the same teams. We might just move some puzzle pieces around, but that's why you are the best in the biz. Your four teams are the four teams. Let's move now to the first four out. We'll start with you this time, Rocco. Give us your first four out. Yeah, so first four out, this is this is going to be a fun one. So um, we'll start it off with Utah State. You know, I kept looking at Utah State. I didn't think they were going to be this close to the field. Obviously, they had an awesome win against New Mexico earlier this week. Um, but Utah State's just got a really bizarre profile in terms of the two uh, quad four losses, uh, which really, you know, puts a little wrinkle in their story. But <clears throat> overall, you know, they've won 14 games that matter. A lot of uh, committee members I've talked to over the years um, and Lenard, Joe Lenardi, who I think a lot of people know, have, have told me that uh, in a lot of cases, Q4 will get ignored uh, when looking at a team's profile, unless you've lost. And in their case, they've lost twice, but against everybody else. And the whole point of doing that is to see what you did against some decent competition. Utah State's 14 and three. Um, and that's easily the best record in, in, the, in the whole bubble picture. Um, but they have some gaping holes. They don't have a Q1 or Q2 road win. Um, so it's it's a fascinating profile. They're also a team in general. I, I enjoy watching that offense. They hum. When they get humming, they're, they're a tough team. I think they could advance in the tournament if they can get in. That's a whole different topic. So we'll move on to the next team, which is Texas A&M. That's a team I actually had in on Monday. Um, they take a loss to Arkansas by 11. And they were barely squeezing in the field to begin with. That loss kind of threw off some other numbers. I still, I still think the Aggies are close, but I've got them second out. Uh, pretty straightforward answer on that one. Oklahoma State's an interesting one. Um, a really nice Bedlam road win 
Um, I think they're, you know, between them and West Virginia, they're both playing this 500 game that Andy mentioned earlier, where they're, I think they're both sitting at 13 and nine today. No team has ever been selected in history uh, to not be at least two games over. And even that's pretty rare. I think it's only happened a couple times, maybe once. Um, so you're going to want to be, if you're the Pokes, the Sooners, or the Mountaineers, they're all in this situation. Um, somebody's got to emerge from that pack. So today it's West Virginia. I've got the Oklahoma schools out. But you can, if you're an Oklahoma or Oklahoma State fan, feel free to just insert your name there if you're the team that comes out of this mess at the end. But I think between the three, one out of those three seems and feels right. Um, so Oklahoma State's third out. My fourth one's pretty interesting uh, because I, in my bracket, I actually have Hofstra as the colonial representative. They beat Charleston head-to-head. They're tied for first. And that puts Charleston in the at-large pool. Pretty interesting conversation. Um, their net number is not strong. They're like 69th, I think, right now. Their other metrics, like Kempom and others, are near the 80s. Um, so it doesn't seem to fit the quote-unquote ideal at-large uh, bid profile. But they do have a strength of record. 44th and when you look at the the big board um we're usually taking like the top 46 in before we get to the auto bids so that that actually i think would get a very heavy debate on charleston if, it, if we were in that scenario uh come march now you have to remember if if charleston actually goes into the at-large pool they'll have to lose again in their conference tournament um but at the same time there's a couple more wins they could get like towson and um, if they did lose to hofstra again hofstra's a top 100 team so um the charleston cougars Still in the mix. They've only lost three times all year. I don't know how you can totally ignore a team that good. Um, so I've got them in the last four out or first four out. I'm glad you brought up Charleston because I had a note on uh, both them and Florida Atlantic that I wanted to to pick your brain on. So let's just dive in a little more to Charleston before we throw it over to Andy. Uh, looking at the schedule, I mean, it, it's it's just the conference schedule at this point. You would expect uh, them to run the table, given on the team that they are, but now they've lost two straight. Suddenly winning seven games to close the season feels a little more daunting than it may have a week ago for Pat Kelsey's team. Uh, what's your gut say, Rocco? Do they need to win out and even if they win out if they lose again to Hofstra is it done for them what does what your gut say yeah I think if they went out and lost again to Hofstra in the CAA title game man that would just be gut-wrenching if they didn't get in because at that point they're probably looking at a 29 and 4 record I'm imagining they would have to win a quarterfinal and a semi without memorizing their bracket but <clears throat> 29 and 4 and they got wins over Virginia Tech Kent State Colorado State, Davidson, Richmond, like upper major teams, right? So I have a good feeling that maybe Dayton's the perfect place to put a team like that. But I do think you look at the rest of their schedule, the, the really only noteworthy games are Towson and UNC Wilmington. Wilmington's really kind of fallen off the last few weeks. And Towson's playing great basketball. They could they could certainly trip up there. Uh, the other problem with the CAA, you know, I, I watch this level of basketball quite a bit. Teams like Elon and uh, – Hampton are, are suddenly just playing feisty as hell. Uh, so they can easily get clipped by one of those guys. So it's, it's not going to be easy for the Cougars. That's my point. Um, but I do think if the Cougars can get to the finish line, get to like 28, 29 wins, they've got a real case. Uh, you mentioned uh, Wilmington and Towson. Both those games are at home just for record. Okay. For Charleston, so that helps. Uh, and then quickly, I, I, I do want to ask on Florida Atlantics. I feel like the same sort of concept applies. They suffer their first, conference loss of the season to UAB last night at UAB. That's a tough game. I, I mean, I, I don't think that's anything that people would say, oh, that's a bad loss or anything like that. 
They've only got two losses on the season now. They haven't lost the second one in a row the same way Charleston did. But uh, are, do they have a little buffer? Do you have Florida Atlantic more firmly in the field if they were to lose another game? I, I do because, you know, their Florida win is getting better with age, and that's a true road win. So they're, they're Florida Florida right now is 41st. That's that's one spot away. Florida keeps playing well from being a quad 1A. It's barely quad 1B. Uh, not that that's super important, but right now you're just looking at a body of work that's 19, a 19-2 and two D1 record. Um, you know, if you ignore Q4, like I said earlier, you're still looking at a 10 and two ball club and they've, the, the team, you know, the team they lost uh, to last night, UAP, I was there in Boca when they beat them, um, the first time. So, so it's not like it, it, it's some team that they couldn't pass the test. They've passed that test before. I think the committee talks about those types of things, especially in this scenario. Um, if they stay around two or three losses, they're going to get in for sure. I think FAU definitely has more leash as well, just because their metrics are a little stronger. Uh, their resume is extremely strong. They have a 19th strength of resume right now. Um, wow. There's no way they're not getting in if they stay in the top 25 or even top 30 of that, in my opinion. So, um, that, you know, they don't want their predictives to, to, to slip that much. Like Kempon, they're still like around 40th. Sagarin, they're down near 60th. So um, it, you're going to get selected based on your resume, not your, uh, not your predictives in most cases. And I think you know, barring any disasters like a UTSA loss, who's absolutely at the bottom of that league. Um, FAU, I sh should be able to hang on, but we'll see. It's a tough league. Yeah, no, we've had that debate on After Dark multiple times this year of like, who's yeah. your your Cinderella if you had to look ahead? And it often comes down to pitting these two against each other, especially when they were both on such, you know, big winning streaks for a while, up to 18, 19 games in a row. Now they both suffer a loss. It's interesting to sort of place where they're at. And it's good to know, quite frankly, that Florida Atlantic has a little bit of a buffer because it would be a shame if that team somehow was kept out of the field. Uh, all right, let's go to you, Andy. Give us your uh, first four out as of today. Yeah, the other one one quick thing on Florida Atlantic to finish. You know, at this point, they've already played UAB twice. They've already played North Texas twice. So right. they went three and one in those games. And really, when you look at the the class of that league, that's it's those teams. Now that doesn't mean that they might not trip up against somebody else, but relatively speaking, um, their schedule is is easier uh, as you move down the stretch. But uh, you know, my last four, uh, there's actually only we we finally broke from consensus here. I only had one of the same teams that Rocco did. So at least we. Oh. Get a little debate finally uh 40 minutes in we finally don't agree on something so uh but uh oklahoma state is the team that's in in both they were the um you know really the only one of these that i think i seriously considered to have in the field uh with them you've got those three quad one wins the sweep of oklahoma certainly helps for bubble purposes they've beaten iowa state at home uh so that part is pretty solid they do have a q3 loss which was by one point to southern illinois uh so that's one thing that maybe doesn't work in their favor uh, so, you know, we'll see, uh, how they fare, uh, coming up, but, uh, they, they're at least kind of right there for me. Uh, then I, I pandered to Dagan and put Seton Hall in here, uh, which, uh, you know, just to make sure I keep my spot on the show. Uh, now, but they, they have, uh, you know, they've been playing well of late. They're up to three and five in, in quad one, two and three in quad two. Uh, they do have a quad three loss to, to Siena on a neutral floor. But they've got a strong non-conference strength of schedule. They're back to six and six in road and neutral games after beating St. John's this week uh, at St. John's. And so, you, you know, you look at them, they've beaten UConn. They won at Rutgers, which is a huge win. They beat Memphis on a neutral floor. So they've got a few really quality wins at the top. And for them, you know, they've got a couple very winnable games in their next four, uh, starting with DePaul. 
uh, coming up over the weekend, but then they host Creighton. That would be another chance to get a huge win. They go to Villanova and come back to host Georgetown. So a couple of those you don't want to stub your toe in, but just in the spirit of trying to win games, uh, a couple of those should help there. Penn State uh, I had next. They're a tough one for me. The non-conference strength of schedule isn't particularly good. They're three and six in road neutral games. I think they only have one true road win, which was a solid one at Illinois. Uh, but otherwise, they've beaten IU. They've beaten Iowa at home. Uh, and then and beaten Michigan is their, their next best win uh, there. They don't have a Q3 or Q4 loss, which is great. But uh, eventually, they got to, uh, I think, start to do a little bit more away from home to, to be able to offset some of the you know 277th ranked uh, non-conference strength of schedule. Good chance to do that by going to Nebraska uh, next up for them. Then they host Wisconsin, go to Maryland, and host Illinois. So they're another team that's got a lot of opportunities coming up, as does pretty much everybody in the Big Ten, but uh, gets a little dicey after that. And then uh, Arizona State was the next one. I, I you know, kind of got to this point. I think you could insert a number of teams there. I looked at some of the ones that, uh, that Rocco had mentioned, looked a little bit at Florida, looked at Oklahoma uh, as well, in, in addition to Utah State and Texas A&M that he mentioned. With Arizona State, you've got uh, you know six quad one and two wins. Uh, you do have that Q four loss at Texas Southern, uh, and and so that that doesn't help. But they are seven and four in road and neutral games, so that helps to stand out a little bit against other bubble teams. There, got the win against Creighton on a neutral floor, but they really need to uh, start stacking some wins. And you know most of their you know they play three of the next five at home. Short of the game against Oregon uh, over the weekend, not a ton of those are going to move the needle other than just to to prevent disaster. So uh, they're kind of hanging out there. But this is where you know, there's just a bunch of teams in this in this area, all of whom you could poke holes in and are somewhat uh, nondescript as you start looking at the resumes. Yeah, I, we've gone over a bunch of different sorting tools, as I called them at the beginning of the show. Uh, two very important sorting tools in the Greg Waddell world of bracketology. Seton Hall ranks number one in the country in coaches I want to see in the NCAA tournament. And Penn State ranks number one in the country in players I want to see in the NCAA tournament. We need Shaheen Holloway and Jalen Pickett in the NCAA tournament. So uh, Penn State, if you could just win a couple more road games, that would be lovely. Seton Hall, take care of business, please. Let's get you guys off the last four, the, not even the last four in, the first four out right now. You've got work to do, and I want to see you get there. Uh, all right, let's let's go to the chat. We haven't gone to the chat yet in the show. We're coming up on 45 minutes here. Dagan, do we have anything popping off in the chat for these guys? Hold on, Greg. You, for, you forgot something. You forgot our consensus. First oh, I forgot. Our cons- I was just, I'm so excited. Yeah, no, you're chat. excited. You're excited. There's only one reason I want to show, I want to show this. It's because our buddy Yuli just showed up in the chat. I just wanted to see that beautiful pirate logo. Uh, one more time. So here, here's our, our consensus top uh, first four out. I'm surprised you wanted to show that your team was out. That's okay. You know why? Because a week ago we weren't even in the conversation. So I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah, sadly, I would kill to be in the first four out right now with my Michigan Wolverines. So I don't blame you there. But um, yes, we do have some questions in the chat and I will, uh, I will, I will ask some. Um, can UCLA get up to the one line? Yes or no? Yeah, I, I would say, I, I'd say it's possible. They'll need some help. Um, obviously if they went out, they'll, they'll host the Arizona schools here at Pauly. Um, I'm down the street. That's why I keep saying here, but, um, <clears throat> yeah, I think, I think they would need some help. Obviously went out, win the, win the PAC 12, uh, they they've been winning the league all, all year long. So win the PAC 12, get that regular season title, get that tournament title, uh, in bracketology, we call that the double. And so if they have the double, uh, from a power conference, you know, they'll certainly be considered for a one. And at that point, as we've talked about with everything else, they'll be compared to whoever's left out there. Um, but I, I think if you know the top, the teams above them stayed as hot as they are now, 
uh, might be too much for UCLA to overcome. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, right now, if you look, they certainly don't have a bad loss, but their best wins are at Maryland, which is the only team to win at Maryland this year. So something you yep. said for that, beating Kentucky on a neutral floor and then beating USC at home. I mean, those are the only teams they've beaten that are in the, the tournament conversation right now. Um, you know, if Oregon maybe plays their way, at least in a little bit closer to the discussion, that win at home helps you a little bit. Plus they travel there pretty soon. But yeah, they're one that uh, when you start looking at that wins versus the field, it does not reflect favorably on them, even though they don't have bad losses. Exactly. Uh, if UConn wins out, we don't even need to talk about that. We can just talk about how, how high is UConn's ceiling this season? What seed can they get? How high? I love well, the if UConn wins out, what a qualifier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll say this. I, I think, you know, a lot of UConn people I've interacted with in, the, in recent weeks uh, are pretty bummed. Obviously, the way they're playing is not good. Um, but it's a body of work, right? And they've got wins over Alabama and Iowa State that still matter quite a bit. Um, so if they are able to get it re-sparked and go, you know, take off again, they're going to pick up some big wins in the Big East. Uh, I don't have their schedule pulled up in front of me, but I, I'll, you know, right now they've been kind of stuck in this 15 to 17 range for me, which is borderline four, side, four seed, five seed. Um, it's hard to push them lower down because the wins that they already got earlier in the year are so amazing. Um, and so if they're able to build on that, you can see them easily getting back up to the three, maybe even a two, a two seed conversation. Yeah, you, if you look at their schedule, they've got, you know, their their teams, the ones they play against teams lowest in the league standings, they go, are three of the four are on the road. They go at Georgetown, and then their last three games are at St. John's, DePaul at home, at Villanova. Um, but in the middle of that, you play Marquette again, you play Seton Hall at home, Providence at home, Creighton. and at Creighton. So that's four, uh, you know, that's four tournament teams that you could get that you have opportunities to beat. I think if they can avoid stubbing their toe against some of these lesser teams, certainly the Georgetowns and, and DePaul's, uh, of, of the world I think you know it, to what you said showing some signs that they've righted the ship a little bit um, in conjunction with all those great wins like those don't go away it isn't a how do you play the last 10 games what's your record the last 10 games like those wins still matter uh, so they've got a pretty high floor because of those wins it just doesn't matter what the ceiling could be I feels like realistically games they could win feels like a three maybe as the ceiling I think if they if they would win out in that hypothetical scenario that was dismissed very quickly uh, they probably could get themselves to the two line I, I would guess depending upon what happens around them I'm sure Rob's watching so I couldn't let him have that if they went out uh sentiment um, I figured the question was from Rob Doster <laughs> no it was it was not it was not it was not uh, if it was I wouldn't have asked it we all know that so um can you guys see the big 12 ending up with six protected seeds yeah, that's a good question. I keep looking at that. You know, it could happen because the way things have played out thus far in Big 12 play, and what are we, about 12 games in or so, give or take, um, it, it's uh, it, there has been, you know, some cannibalism ac across the top six. And if they keep cannibalizing each other, that's just going to keep them up. Um, you know, so just take turns winning at each other's buildings or protecting home court, a mix of that every week. Um, I don't see how it changes too much. Uh, you know, TCU is the team that's got the most volatility because they have a loss to Northwestern State in quad four. Um, so if, if the frogs start to slip a little bit, it's going to be a, a little easier to knock them off the protected seed area. Um, but I think teams like Baylor, Texas, Kansas have a, a really solid footing. Kansas State's the one where maybe um, they just haven't done a lot of road damage. Well, they did win at Texas and Baylor. I should take that back. But they don't have as many wins against the field as the other teams I've mentioned. So uh, maybe Kansas State's capable of slipping. But I could certainly see it if the cannibalism continues. 
Yeah, I, I tend to think it probably ends up closer to five when it's all said and done. But if those teams really, yep. you're starting to see that a little bit. Oklahoma State's really the one that's kind of in the middle, but the conference has started to separate a little bit where you've got, you know, the, those six that are over 500. Then you got Oklahoma State at four and five, and then it drops off to West Virginia, Oklahoma at two and seven each. So if you really see all those teams just beat up on the the bottom four, which is the, you know, probably arguably the best bottom four of any conference that you'd find out there. But if those teams really start getting beaten up by the top ones, and to your point, Rocco, they trade wins with one another uh, among that group of six, I definitely think that's possible. Um, the the Miles injury for TCU doesn't help their case to survive some of those kinds of games and just becomes another injury to take into account as well as you start thinking about that. So it seems like five is, is more likely than six, but I think there's a, a chance if they really start to see that separation get more and more pronounced as you go through the rest of the season. I have one quick follow-up for you guys because it's bringing me back to our our last four and first four out conversations. But we both we had West Virginia and Wisconsin in the mix there, and I'm just envisioning like West Virginia right now two and seven in the Big Twelve. We talk about how they're you know they're they're at the bottom of the barrel. They might just keep losing to these seven teams ahead of them, even though their quality metrics are pretty damn good. And then you've got a Wisconsin team who like it, it wouldn't be shocking if they crack 500 in Big Ten play, just given some of those teams they're going to play a couple more times this season like does that at the end of the year if you're evaluating two resumes that are similar like that like does the nod just go to a team that even if they might finish like six and 14 in conference play they had to go play Kansas twice and Texas twice instead of what the Big Ten's going through I think you still got to be at least in in shooting distance of of 500 right like if they lose that many games i know you're just kind of throwing out hypotheticals but like even let's say they go seven and eleven right like they end up with that gives them 13 losses in total um you know they're 18 and 13 going into the big 12 tournament you really probably need uh, maybe you could survive a loss but if you lose your first game you're 18 and 14 like that becomes pretty difficult i, I think at that point the losses almost just become too much and, and their schedule is just horrific it is the stuff of nightmares where they've got two games left against iowa state uh they they've got they go to kansas uh they've got um texas on the road baylor on the road kansas state at home so i mean like they're they they have not yet i don't know maybe i'm doing the math wrong here but you know if we really think of those like top four or five teams they haven't played as many games against those as other teams might have so i think it's fairly unlikely and the other challenge with the big 10 in particular to compare to the schedule is so unbalanced that just and the committee says they don't look at conference record for a variety of reasons but that would be one of them to me if they go you know wisconsin does well in the big 10 but they only played purdue once and you know you know draw out of a hat who you think the next big you know top big 10 teams are and they played a bunch of those only once you could rack up a bunch of conference wins and and it's not empty. They're, they're not empty wins. They matter, but it, it might matter a little bit less in the big 12, where at least they play a true round Robin. There's a bit more to be said for that. And if everybody did that, then maybe that would take it, that into account a little bit more, but that's just not uh, unfortunately the way these conferences are set up. Right. Yeah. And we saw it last year with the ACC wake forest dominated 13 and five, uh, had a terrible non-conference strength of schedule and it still did them in a lot of those 13 wins they got in the ACC we're not against um, very competitive teams just because it was one of the worst ACCs in history. And uh, here in the, you know, Big Ten and Big 12, like Big Ten, as Andy mentioned, um, with the unbalanced schedule, uh, Wisconsin specifically, they do get a home game against Purdue. Like you win that, you're probably well above the, the cut line. Um, they'll, they'll also get some big home opportunities with Rutgers, Iowa, and Northwestern all coming to town. Um, so the Badgers just take care of the home business from here. I think they're in really good shape. 
their road games are against much less competition, at least teams out of the field, uh, that being Michigan, Penn State, Nebraska, and Minnesota. So um, Wisconsin, just got, I, I think from here, just take care of your home business, you're going to get there. Um, and then the, the, the larger point, you know, you mentioned West Virginia, Greg. I think it applies to not only them, but both Oklahoma's, as I kind of hinted at earlier. Um, you're playing this 500 game. And, you know, if you end up 6-12 and 12 in the league, you're still, you know, it's not part of your team sheet or your resume, but you're you're compounding all the all that losing. It's going to throw off your quad records. You're not going to win a lot of comparisons that way. You're probably there's probably not a lot of combinations or any that are going to get you above the cut line when you're compared to teams from other leagues. And that's where the 500 game becomes the most important thing for those three particular schools. Uh, last year, perfect example: Iowa State had a better resume because they went 12 and 0 non-league. They go seven and eleven in the league, but they got in pretty safely. Uh, Oklahoma, they had more of a, a dicey non-conference uh, schedule, and they end up going seven and eleven. Porter Mosier was not happy that they didn't get in, but they they weren't anywhere near the field, in my opinion. Um, so there's there's two different types of seven and elevens depending on what your non-conference looks like and the actual teams you've beaten in the conference. It's really fascinating because uh, I, I'm sure there's going to be some on the, the odd side out of the Big 12, specifically given how good the top six teams in that league are this year. But yeah. as someone who's watched so much Big 10, like I would just love to know, what if we threw Wisconsin in West Virginia or Oklahoma shoes? What if we threw Northwestern teams that we think we feel pretty confident will earn their way in from protecting home court in the big 10 down the stretch. Like, man, let's just flip. Let's say the challenge that's left. They got to go at Texas at Baylor at Kansas, Iowa state, and still find five wins in those final seven games or whatever it is. Uh, just a very interesting. So I'll, I'll be keeping my eyes on that just as a fan, as we get into the stretch run here, Dagan, do we have any final, final questions that we want before we jump to games to watch? No, since you're pushing up against an hour here, I'll let you guys do your, uh, do your games to watch here. Perfect. All right, guys, let's go around the horn. Just give me your your biggest game to watch. How about that? And then we'll wrap the show here. Let's start with you, Rocco. What do you got? Well, it's tough. I, I think they're all kind of interesting. Uh, here's a really interesting one that I'm looking at. Um, and we haven't really talked about this team yet. Uh, Clemson is going to host Miami. Um, now, both teams are in today, of course. Clemson's technically still the ACC representative. Uh, but they lose this home game to Miami. Um, take a look at this real quick. They'll, they'll be out of first place in the ACC uh, for all intents and purposes as long as Virginia handles Virginia Tech. That, again, is another bubble opportunity for the Hokies. But um, if Clemson goes into the bubble field, uh, the at-large field, um, I think they're kind of on thin ice. They'd be go squarely on the bubble for me with their two quad four losses. Uh, they, they, they actually took another tough loss to BC. I think that's falling in Q3 uh, earlier this week. Um, so that's I think that's a, a really important game for Clemson. Andy, what about you? Uh, yeah, there's a, a, a huge slate of games uh, on Saturday. I will throw out um, – that, that was a good one from Rocco. I'll, I'll throw out two real quick ones. One is Florida at Kentucky. Can Florida build on what they did uh, against Tennessee? They're you know, kind of in that next group of teams out. They've got to find ways to get some more wins. That would obviously go a long way. And for Kentucky – at least it would be another you know win that maybe makes them a little bit safer against the team that's there. And then Gonzaga St. Mary's, uh, St. Mary's metrics darling in in a number of ways. Like can they actually uh, can they beat Gonzaga? They've had success against them in the past, but can they beat them to in some ways validate what's the the net and uh, some of the other uh, metrics are saying about them? So that one becomes big. And really Gonzaga, 
is running out of chances to to get impressive wins as well to really push their way up toward uh, you know they're in that kind of three four mix right now can they push their way up the seed list a little bit getting a win at St. Mary's would go a long way toward doing that yeah I'm glad you just touched on my one game to watch that I was going to fire at you guys and that's Gonzaga St. Mary's is there is there a world where Gonzaga pushes back up to the two, the one line even? Like if they win out from here, sweep St. Mary's, win the conference, how far off are they? Because it's been, what, three, four years now that we've seen a Gonzaga team atop the sport on that one line? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'll be covering the game, so follow along on the live coverage. Um, but, yeah, like the, the Gonzaga profile, uh, the way they've gotten there before, obviously – big non-conference wins, dominating like the Kempom, the Nets, the, all the predictives. You know, if Gonzaga can go and play a whole month's worth of basketball like they played last year, I don't fully fo foresee that, but they played great last night in their Santa Clara win. Um, you know, maybe they do get back up towards like the top five of the Net and the top five of the Kempoms. And from a seeding perspective, if you throw in three wins against St. Mary's, they still have to play twice in the regular season. They usually play each other in the championship game as well, the tournament. Um, that would go a long ways to probably getting them close to a two. They would have, they would have to be strongly considered, I think for a two in that scenario. And yeah, you agree? agree. Yeah. Two, two feels like the ceiling. I mean, if you assume those three wins that all be quad one, which I think they would be uh, barring St. Mary's making a precipitous fall down the, down the rankings that put them six and three. If you look at what it is now, 11 and three in the top two quadrants, but that, that LMU loss still uh, hurts. And as we talk about, you know, we use the quad three loss against Houston to a certain extent in the one seed conversation. And I think that, Certainly is at play here, especially with metrics that are a little bit worse than uh, some of the other teams that are there right now. So, yeah, two feels like the ceiling uh, as of now, if they can rip off those wins and if they play St. Mary's uh, in the in the WCC finals, which uh, it would, would seem highly likely this year, like it is most every other year. Right. Yeah, that's going to be a fun one, guys. St. Mary's, uh, Ken Palm's got St. Mary's winning that game by five points against Gonzaga this weekend. I will be very excited to watch that. Uh, and we hope you enjoyed watching this as much as I will enjoy watching Gonzaga St. Mary's this weekend. This was Fielding the 68, our Bracketology show, again, every Monday, every Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern. You can hear from guys like Rocco Miller, Andy Bottoms, Brad Wachtel, Lucas Harkins, uh, we have the official bracket that's going to be sent out right after the show wraps tonight. So keep an eye out for that on Twitter, on Instagram, on all of the Field of 68 social media channels. Uh, gentlemen, it's always a pleasure talking bracketology with you. We'll see you guys next week. Uh, for Andy, for Rocco, my name is Greg Waddell. We'll see you next time.